Coming up on this edition of the Plate Meeting, we talk to Dave Phillips, who in nearly 4,000 games amassed 83 ejections. We'll talk about a bunch of them, including his four World Series with the long and storied career of Dave Phillips. That's coming up on the Plate Meeting right now. Welcome to the Plate Meeting. This is Gil alongside T-Mac. And we would like to encourage you to follow us along on Twitter, Umpire Ejections, and like us on Facebook. Also, Umpire Ejections, we appreciate the support on those platforms. And we also have a YouTube channel, Close Call Sports, where we have been analyzing plays and explaining rules, as well as documenting the great success of the Atlantic League's ball strike computer simulation experiment. Now, without further ado, here is T-Mac for the interview. Dave Phillips joins us on the Plate Meeting Podcast. Brief introduction, 31 years in the big leagues, nearly 4,000 games, six ALCSs, four World Series, including two as crew chief, and he joins us on the Plate Meeting. Dave, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Joe, for having me. Look forward to it. You know, one of the interesting things... Uh, about your career before we get into the the start of it is you umpired 173 games in 1971 uh, in the big leagues. I'm pretty sure it wasn't a 173 game regular season schedule. You get a lot of rainouts that year and and just uh, it's crazy. I can't believe that number 173 regular season games. Well, Phil, I'm impressed. You did your homework. Uh, you know that's something that's really ignored a lot, and not too many people. Know it, I knew it, and uh, the other three people that I worked with knew it uh, at the time. But, uh, you know, when you mention that to somebody who either umpired or, or uh, was a friend, they kind of just look at it, oh, you're really, you know, okay, big deal. Well, it was a gigantic deal in light of the fact that the season is 162 games, and we played, a, I worked 173 games. Actually, I missed one of those games. Uh, due to an issue with my my daughter in St. Louis at the time she was a baby. So I would have worked 174 games. I guess if you looked at Russ Getz or Jerry Newdecker, you would see the same thing. But anyway, uh, it was ridiculous. We had unbelievable amount of doubleheaders that we picked up that other guys lost. And uh, when I say ridiculous, it was it was I'm more problematic for me probably than anybody, even though I was the younger umpire on the crew and I was just 26 at the time, and obviously supposedly had a lot more energy and excitement and, and things of that nature when you're that age, but also I was used to 140-game schedule in the minor leagues, and always done in September, and of course your first year in the big leagues, you're always uh, you know, you, you have a whole lot more um, uh, problems and, and pressure and things of this nature, because you're going to new stadiums, new teams, new managers, new players, new everything, so you're the newbie on the on the on the on the block rookie, so to speak. And I was exhausted. I was mentally exhausted at the end of the season, not so much physically, but mentally. I couldn't wait for the season to be over. It was. It seemed like it never would end. And that's that's on top of that. I worked 30 games in in spring training, so I worked over 200 games my first year in the big leagues. And uh, just to make this point, I would say today's umpires, and I'm not certainly being critical in any way, shape, or form. I would say most umpires probably, and I say probably, work somewhere around 125 to 130 games a year, and that's a full season, with their vacations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and also the replay thing. 
I, I just before we got into the crux of the interview, Davey, I just wanted people to understand where you came from. And, and and that's part of it. But also baseball is a lot different now. It's five thousand dollars for umpire school. There's all these other camps, but you didn't live a life of luxury and your decision to go to umpire school was not like an easy one. In fact, uh, in your book, which I'll, I'll reference a lot, and it's a great book, Centerfield on Fire, Dave Phillips uh, writes it with Rob Raines, written in 2003. I'm just going to say for any umpire out there, if you can get it on Amazon, if you can go to your local library, you got to read this book. Uh, I just read it for the second time uh, last night, and it is amazing. You pull no punches in that book. We'll get to that in a little later on. But I want you to, to talk to, for me for a second about how you made the decision to go to umpire school. Well, uh, you know, I started umpiring Phil when I was 14 years old, never with the idea or aspiration of becoming a major league umpire and are an umpire for that matter. Uh, I was on a pretty good baseball team as a player, and they were having difficulty getting umpires for the uh, eight, nine-year-old kids. Uh, at that time, nowadays you see a lot of kids umpiring those kind of games, but in those days back in the 50s, early 50s, it was generally older men, 35, 40, 45, 50, and for job commitments, whatever, they'd either miss the game, get there late, what have you. And so the, the guy that ran the league decided he would try to get some younger umpires, kids, pretty good players, pretty knowledgeable of the game. And he came over and visited with our team. And it's a unique in a way in light of the fact that he thought we were good athletes, good team, and so on. We knew the game. We knew how to play the game. And why wouldn't you like to umpire? And so he told us all about it and how much he'd like to have us participate as umpiring and so on. And asked how many would be interested, and no one raised their hand, including myself. And then he said, well, maybe I didn't mention, but we pay $5 a game. And with that, 13 of us raised our hand. So I was motivated to become an umpire at an early age by the fact that, you know, I could make a little extra money. And in those days, back in the 50s, and it's probably hard for a lot of people to know that, but there wasn't any jobs available like there are today in fast food restaurants and this, that, whatever. In fact, there wasn't any fast food restaurants to speak of. And so you made, you made money by either having a paper route and or a uh, um, cutting grass or shoveling snow or something of that nature. So this was something I enjoyed. So I started, I, I started for $5 a game. And, you know, I kidded people for many years after that. I worked 32 years in the major leagues. I almost doubled my income in the, in the years to come from the $5 amount, but, uh, and, and that's kind of a joke, obviously, but I was very fortunate. I started when I was 14. By the time I was 18, 19, I was working high school games, and actually, uh, and that was another interesting part of the story, and in light of the fact that we can talk for a while on this, I'll explain it. Um, I, I really wasn't probably prepared to work high school baseball at that time. I was working, you know, 8, 9, 10, 12, 14-year-old kids and so on, and all of a sudden I... I applied to be in the high school league, and the guy said, yeah, sure. He said, we'd like to have you, but he said, you got to get your license. And so I went and did all that stuff with the state of Missouri. And, you know, and, and uh, he says, well, are you available every day? He said, I can't give you a schedule because I've never seen the umpire. But I said, are you available every day if I happen to have a cancellation or something? I said, yes, sir. I said, I'm available every day, any day you want me to umpire, of which I was. Well, that, that particular year, there was a lot of rain, and there was a lot of, a lot of cancellations of games. And then when the, when the rain finally stopped, there was a whole bunch of games. They had to be umpired, and they didn't have enough umpires. So I ended up working probably 17 to 20 games, of which I didn't think I was going to get any. 
only because they had overabundance of games and, and not enough umpires. And so I was thrust into a lot of these games, probably beyond, beyond my experience level at the time, although I didn't have any problems and everything went really well. But as I look back and reflect on it, uh, I was, you know, jumping into a, a something a little bit, it was a little bit more organized, you know, with the manager wore uniforms, things of this nature, which was different than what I had experienced. And I know that sounds silly to say that, but it was a little bit, and there was a lot, lot more people in the stands because the kids would show up from the high school and so on. So, yeah, it was a, a big deal for me. I enjoyed it. I was lucky. I got good at it. People said, gee, you ought to, you ought to continue to do this, which I did. And now, heck, I, I was making pretty good money as a young man. You know, in the summertime, I'd work every game I could, and this, that, whatever. Uh, told me about this umpiring school in Florida, and um, of which I didn't know anything about. I had never been to Florida, so I thought, my gosh, I may ought to try that. And, and of course, when I was 20 years old, I collected all my money that I had available and headed off to Daytona Beach, Florida. And that's another story itself. But I went to Daytona Beach, Florida for the Al Summers Umpire School in 1964. And I want to get to that because as a young man, you go to this umpire school and you get to meet a, a longtime friend of yours, Larry Barnett there, a guy that would parallel your career. What were your first impressions uh, when you stop your car at the umpires, you know, at the hotel? What are your first impressions of what is about to take place? Well, Phil, it's very interesting. Another part of the story, I, I left St. Louis. I was dating a girl that I ended up marrying, and I'm still married to 55 years later in November, and I left St. Louis. We had breakfast, and I remember being really, you know, upbeat, let's go get them, and this type of thing, and I got in my 1964 a brand-new Pontiac four-speed on the floor and headed off to Florida, and that was long before there was any major highways around. You had to go through all the little towns getting to Florida, and, of course, my dad wasn't really sure that uh, I knew how to do that and get down there and so on. He was a little bit concerned, I'm sure, but as I crossed the bridge leaving St. Louis, I can vividly remember tears welling up in my eyes and already homesick and thinking, what the heck, What the hell am I doing? You know, I mean, do I really want to do this? And, you know, as I got down the road a little bit further and then I'm, I'm, I'm moving into Paducah, Kentucky, and I'm, you know, getting my mind set and I'm moving a little differently. And I finally get down to a place called Dothan, D-O-T-H-A-N, Alabama. And in those days, it wasn't, as I said, major highways. And, and I called my father back, collect, obviously, and, uh, and I told him where I was. And he, he, he thought I was running into the Indianapolis 500 because he, he couldn't back. He'd go, oh, my gosh, you did really well. And, you know, I didn't know how well I did. I just got tired. I stopped. And, you know, those were the days where, um, and, and it's an interesting part of, of, the, of the, 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 uh, the journey, let's call it, uh, the days where, you know, I went to go to breakfast the next day, and I'm in the south, and, and you know, I see uh, where's the bathroom, and they said, well, it's right over there. But the, and then you go out, there's a colored, there was a colored dra- a drinking fountain, and there was a colored bathroom, and, you know, things I had never seen or ever thought, what the heck is this all about? And so it was a lot different part of the South than obviously it is today. And anyway, I finally, the next day I get in the car, I head to Daytona Beach, Florida, and I've got my mind set a little bit better at that point in time, and I'm raring to go. And so I get down there, and I finally get there about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and I remember vividly sitting in front of the, uh, of the umpiring school in my, my, as I said, my 1964 Pontiac, and I'm thinking, I don't really want to go in there. I, I think I'm just going to just go on back home. I, I really don't want to do this. I had, I had all the insecurities and the, and the, the fear that everybody, I didn't know at the time, you know, you, you're 20 years old. I had not done, then explored anything of this nature. 
And I sat there probably for 20 minutes deciding whether I was going to go in, and I pretty much made up my decision I was not. I was going to go on home. And then I thought, well, you know, I drove all the way down here. I ought to at least go in. So I did go in, and I went in, and obviously you know, went in the office and so on. And I realized, amazingly, I realized shortly after I got in the building that all my fears and anxiety that I was experiencing, everybody else had the same thing because it was the unknown. And so by that feeling right there, I just decided I'm in the right place, right time. And they assigned me a room, and off we went. And six weeks later, I was uh, evaluated and rated third in my class. And uh, I got a job in the Midwest League. So I was thrilled to death and excited, and I moved on and pursued my career. And seven years in the minor leagues and 32 years in the big leagues. Before we get to the minor league career, I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, your spring training in 1964. <laughs> Because it's fascinating. Uh, so you show up to whose camp and what happens? Well, Bethany, so I, I finish up in school. I graduate. I, I drive back home. And when I drive back home, I know that I'm going to go to the Midwest League. And in those days, you wrote a letter to the Midwest League and it, as though that you were, you were being recommended by the umpiring school. And they knew they had X number of openings. And then if you got recommended by the umpiring school, they accepted you. So I was when I left the umpiring school, I knew I was going to the Midwest League for whatever reason. I hadn't received the contract yet, but they assured me of that. So they said, you go home, and of course, so this is in late February, and you'll get, a, you'll get a call from us to go to spring training and our letter. So I go home just like I was supposed to, and I, you know, I look for a quick job to try to make any kind of money I could make between February, let's say, 20, 23rd, 24th, and I knew I was going to go back sometime March 18th or 19th. So I drive home, take two, three guys with me, drop them off on the way home, and then I get to St. Louis and stay for two or three weeks, and I don't hear anything. I don't hear anything from anybody. And, you know, I'm a young kid, and I keep waiting and looking for the mail, and, you know, anybody call, and nobody. Finally, I, I talked to a few guys I went to umpiring school with, and they were already got their letter, and they're going here, and they're going there, and everything else. And, and this, it's like right March the 23rd, 24th, and, so I call the Al Summers umpiring school, the only place I knew to call. And uh, I get Al Summers on the phone, and he, he's, he's a little older at the time, and he's, who is this? And I says, what's Dave Phillips? They, oh, yeah, Dave, yeah, yeah, what's up? And I says, well, I hadn't heard anything about spring training, and I says, I don't know if I'm going or if I'm not going. You know, I, you know how you are. You're embarrassed because you don't know if you even should be calling this guy. He, he, was, a, <laughs> he was kind of a, the, the, the man at the time. And he looks down the list. I could see, I could hear him kind of fumbling through papers and so on. And he finally says to me, um, well, yeah, yeah, you're going with the Cincinnati Reds. And this is, let's just say this is March the 25th. And he says, yeah, you're, you're, you're going there. You should be there March the 20th. And I said, sir, I said, uh, uh, it's already the 25th. Well, why aren't you there? He yelled, why aren't you? I said, well, I, I, this is the first I knew, but I'm sorry. I didn't know. Well, you need to get out there right away. Okay, okay, good. You know, he hangs up the phone. Well, hell, I get off the phone. I, I pack things real quick. I mean, I'm scared. And i got to drive back to Florida. Uh, you know, just before you had any money to fly, or I don't even know if they're, you know, what the deal was. So I get out there, and I get out there two more days later. So I'm like now five or six days late. And I go, in, I, I go up the same feeling. I get there. I don't know what I'm to expect. And I'm going to the Cincinnati Reds spring training camp, which is, exactly where the Tampa Bay, uh, Tampa plays their football games now. That's exactly where it was. They built a football stadium there on that, on that field, and it's right behind where the big stadium was for the Tampa Reds uh, at the time, and they sort of that down, I suspect. But 
Anyway, I sit in front of this building again, and I'm thinking, Jesus, do I really want to go in here? You know, same feeling I had at the Empire School, the insecurity, the apprehension, the whether, what am I doing, what, what, who, who's who, whatever. So I walk in, I never forget, I walked in the front door, and, uh, and there's a desk there, and there's a man sitting behind the front door, two double doors open, I walk in, and he looks up after a few minutes, and he says, what are you doing in here? I mean, just like that, what are you doing in here? You know the players go to go around the other side. I mean, really, kind of meanly, so to speak. And that person turned out to be Herc Robinson, who ended up becoming a general manager, president, whatever you want to say, for the Kansas City Royals, and whom I got to know quite well many, many years later over those years. We discussed that story. In fact, when I went to Japan with the Kansas City Royals, he and his wife were on that trip, as was my wife and myself. And so we visited each other and laughed about this kind of a story. But So I finally looked at him meekly, and I said, sir, I'm one of the umpires. And he says, he looks up, he says, where have you been? That's the next thing he yelled real loud. Where have you been? See, so I said, oh, well, I, I tried to explain the story. He didn't care about the story. And, he, you know, he said, hey, we, we need you today. You go back and get dressed. We need you out there. And so I said, okay, so where's the umpire's dressing room? And he says, uh, we don't have an umpire's dressing room. I said, oh, Okay. Where should I go? And he says, well, you just go back and pick a locker. And I said, oh, well, okay, okay. So I, I just go get my car. I drive around where he told me. I go in the door. Now, all the there's nobody in there. They're all out there running and doing whatever they're doing. And there's not very many lockers, but there's one right by the door where everybody walks out. Nobody wanted that one, I guess. So I thought well, I'd pick this locker. There's, and I asked the guy, I says, who are the other umpires here? And he says, there's no other umpires here. You're here. And, and, and I said, oh, my. You know, so <laughs> I, I didn't know what that meant. I wasn't sure what he, whether he told it correctly or not. But So I go back there, and I'm the only, I don't see anybody else that looks like an umpire, and I'm the only one in the dressing room. I put my stuff in there real quick, and he told me they needed me out there as soon as I could get dressed. They're going to have a game like at 12, and let's just say it's about, you know, 10 after 11 or something. So I get, I'm dressing, and I'm dressing, and there's still nobody in the dressing room. And finally... I almost get fully dressed. I am fully dressed, and I, I hear spikes walking on the floor. I can hear somebody coming from someplace, and so I meekly put my head down as though I was tying my shoes, and you know, and the guy who's walking by me stops. I can see his shoes right in front of me, and he's and I can see it's fine. I had no, no choice but to look up, and I look up, and it's it's uh, it's an old man, real old guy, and. Uh, I looked at him, and, I, and he says, what are you doing? Well, I was dressed in my umpire uniform. I had my protector on. I didn't have my hat on yet, but I said, well, I'm going to umpire the game. And he says, oh, my God. He said, well, they'll eat you alive, kid. And, I, and then he walked out the door laughing. Me wasn't being mean, but he just said, they'll eat you alive. And I'm thinking, oh, I, now I really want to get in the car and go home. I think this is a bad idea. <laughs> and there's no other umpire there. And again, again, I finally get to the point where 12 o'clock and maybe somebody yells, hey, Uncle, let's go, and whatever. So I walk out there and, you know, just myself. There's nobody else there. And I got a game with uh, the Macon team and, the, and I believe it was the Cedar Rapids team. They're playing each other. You know, they're all Reds farm teams. And I worked the game, and that's how it went for that entire 20-something days that I spent down there. There was no other umpire. I worked every game. Every time I'd work a game and I'd finish it, and I'd start to walk off the field, they'd yell, "Hey, where are you going?" And you know, something like that. And I'd turn around and because I was too naive not to keep walking, 
And they said, kick back, come on. And so I didn't end up working the last five innings of the next game, you know, because they didn't have anybody. The umpires, the, the people who were umpiring were the managers or coaches or players that weren't playing. And, of course, they didn't pay you any money. I mean, they, I think they gave you – I think they gave – well, they know what they gave me. That's another story. They gave, they told me my hotel was at the Florida Indian Hotel. And and so after I finally get finished with that first day, I get in my car, go down to the Florida Indian Hotel, which was hard to find. It was an old hotel downtown Tampa. And uh, I walk into the desk, and the lady says, uh, yes, Mick. I, I said, yes, ma'am. I'm one, one of the umpires of the Cincinnati Reds and uh, spring training and told me to come here to get a room. But she's Oh, okay. That's how she looks down. She's okay. Yeah, you're 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 a roomie. Uh, here's a room for you. Uh, you'll be you'll be with. Uh, and she named somebody that I knew was another umpire because it wasn't any. And I said, Well, who is that? And she said, Well, I don't know who it is. I says it says here that he's a, a making baseball team. And it was a, it was a, it was like a, a Spanish name. So I right away knew it was a player. And and, and I said, Well, Miss, I I can't I can't have that room. I said, I, you know, and she's like. What do you mean you can't have the room? <laughs> you, you, you take the room I give you, you know, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. And I said, no, you don't understand. I'm one of the umpires. I can't live with another player. It's just I can't do that. And I, I don't know why I couldn't do that because I didn't know all the rules of what you should or shouldn't do, but I just knew I wouldn't have been comfortable doing it. And she's, well, how about this? Would you room with this guy? And she's almost like I'm being belligerent, see, the way she's acting. And she gives me the other guy, and... I think she says to me, it says he's a trainer. And I said, yeah, yeah, that would be fine. And so I go up there in the room, and he's not there. And I don't know who he is. And so finally he comes in. It was probably the best thing happened to me because he was in his, oh, I'd say he was probably 35, 38, and, you know, I'm 20. So he's like an old man at the time. And But he, I think, sensed right away that I was really a raw young kid, probably maybe since I was scared to death. And he kind of took me, and, and, you know, I kind of went with him. Oh, and then you had to eat with the players. In other words, they had a train table down there. They didn't get any money to go eat. So you had to go down there when they ate at 5 o'clock, you ate at 5 o'clock. Well, hell, you know, if nobody didn't like some pitch you call or whatever, you know, and you, you just didn't, and never had a comfort zone there, if you follow what I'm saying. Absolutely. And uh, so I, uh, I remember a couple times I went across the street to Morris's cafeteria just to be by myself, even though it cost me money. And this this trainer later became a good friend, uh, and I can't remember his name now. But he, I ran into him again later in my career in the International League. I might add, uh, he was the trainer at Buffalo, New York, and uh, and you know by that time I had enough experience and you know kind of uh, so to speak uh, confidence and and credibility that I could go over and say hi to him. Don Zimmer was managing the team at the time, so uh, that was that was in the days when. When things like that were happening, well, that's another story of the of the first year with the international league with all the old players. But anyway, spring training was a nightmare. I mean, it was an absolute nightmare. My first one, I remember calling Larry Barnett, whom I didn't really know that well in 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 the umpire school. If, you, if I can explain it to you, in other words, they they separated you by your alphabet, and his, him being B and me being P, I was on one side of this large. Uh, which was really an old barracks of the Army or Air Force or somebody, and he was on the other side. But we got to know each other. I don't know how we did. I guess it, when, it, when it became the fact he was going to the Midwest League and I was as well. And so we kind of hung around the last week or so of the school, and that's how I got to know him, you know, really considered him a pretty good friend. We got to talking. And I knew he was at Boston at Winter Haven. 
So I called him, or maybe he called me. I don't know how it was. And I, and I, I, I said, how's your spring training doing? You know, I'm thinking he's going to tell me the same thing. He said, oh, man, he said, I had, a, I had a great game. I worked third base. And I said, you worked third base? I said, well, who worked the other bases? And he said, well, we got this guy and that guy and this guy, and he named them all. And, and he said, yeah. I, I said, oh, man. I said, so you got other umpires there? He said, oh, yeah. He said, we got, I think we got five umpires, six umpires. And, of course, the Red Sox were a first-class organization where the Cincinnati Reds were, you know, really kind of cheap, so to speak. And I guess that's how I got sent there. So, anyway, uh, I, was, I had more experience by the time I got to the Midwest League. That year. I probably worked 175 games that year, too. But uh, I, I worked two or three a day at spring training. And I remember another cute story about this. Everybody was eating in, the, uh, in this, what you would call a mess hall or in the basement or whatever you want to call it, train table. And all the players did that. So I go out to work a game one, oh, this is about after about the 10th, 11th, 12th day of two, three games a day. And as I walk in, I hear somebody says to me, are you, are, how are you feeling? And I said, I'm, I guess I'm all right. Why? Well, he said, well, a lot of the players have got food poisoning from down there last night. And immediately my mind went, oh, man, I don't feel good either. I got, I got food poisoning too. And I didn't have food poisoning. I think I may have across the street the day before. But uh, I didn't want to be, you know, uh, uh, so to speak, a liar. But I knew what the day was going to be, another two or three games. And if everybody else was taking off, I think I ought to take off too. So um, they said, well, why don't you just go home? We're, we're going to cancel a lot of these games. But the ones that are here, they'll still play. But you need to rest a little bit if you have it. So I got, a, I got one day off during that time only because I inadvertently got food poisoning, so to speak, that I didn't have. I want to talk a little bit about your minor league career because if you read the acknowledgments in your book, most people recognize the names of Larry Barnett, Dale Scott, Rocky Rowe, Bill Harris, Steve Palermo, Derwood Merrill. And if they're fans of this podcast, they'll certainly know the name of Dick Butler, who gets mentioned every time we interview uh, an American League umpire. But the one name they, they wouldn't know was Frank Walsh, who is known as Franny Walsh. But you had yeah. the distinct pleasure of umpiring with in double a and he had come from the big league he was a big league umpire former big league umpire now working in the texas league can you tell me a little bit about your experience working with franny walsh probably one of the most profound experiences i had in my minor league career and also uh was a gigantic boost for my minor league career keep it in mind it was my third year in professional baseball my first two were in the midwest league and in the second year in the Midwest League, Larry Barnett and I were partners. And uh, we had a wonderful year, and both of us really, really enjoyed it, each other's company, the whole thing. You know, we were, so to speak, veterans. We had gotten mentally into the knowing what we were supposed to do, some of the mistakes you might have made as a rookie. You, you know, you felt like, you know, you, were really, you, were, you, were, you really thought you were pretty good in the first year, and in the second year you realized, I must not have been too good because I really feel like I'm getting good now, if you follow the, the comment that I'm making there. Absolutely. Well, I get promoted to the Texas League, and, and, and I don't know. I mean, I get a letter. In those days, I got a letter from Barney Deary in the middle of the winter <clears throat> telling me they were consider, considering sending me to the Carolina League. But after looking at it more thoroughly and the reviews or ratings or whatever he said, we're going to promote you to the Texas League which was double-A, which I, I didn't know. You know, those days you didn't know where you were going to go. Well, I didn't know that Larry Barnett was going there. I didn't know who was there. I didn't even know the teams in the Texas League. So, anyway, 
I get to the Texas. I, I, I'm. That's another funny story. They're going to send me to Escondido, California, for spring training from the Texas League, and I'm going to be with the Cubs. And um, and uh, so I, everybody else is going to Florida, and, and I'm going out to Escondido, California, which is kind of shocking, but that's where I was going to go. And I get out there, and and I wish I could remember the guy's name. Uh, he, it's amazing. I get to Sandy. I never flown on first. And so they they tell me to fly to Tulsa first, and Mr. Finnerty of the Texas League president is going to meet me at the plane. He wants to introduce himself, meet me, talk to me, and so on. So I get to, uh, to Texas, uh, to Tulsa, Oklahoma, flying out of St. Louis, and I'm amazed on an airplane first of all. I've never been on one. And uh, I get off in Tulsa, as I'm supposed to do, and I'm looking as I'm walking down the corridor for this Mr. Finnerty, whom I don't know, don't know what he looks like or anything else. And I get to all the all the way in. There's nobody down there waiting for me. And so I look back down by the airplane, and there was a man standing there. So I walk back again to this guy because there's nobody else. And, and he sees me coming, and, and I walk up to him. And I said, are, are you Mr. Finnerty? He says, yeah, yeah. I said, Dave, oh, hey, oh, yeah, Dave. Well, I'd already passed him. Well, and the reason that happened, and it's kind of funny in my opinion, is that I was so young looking I'm sure that when he saw me, he thought, holy Christ, what the hell did they send me? I mean, this is a young boy. And, and of course, I was a young boy. I, you know, I didn't think of myself as such, but I thought of myself as a mature, real, really rugged umpire, so to speak. But I was a young kid. If you can look in that book, you can see what it looked like. And, oh, baby and, face. Yeah, and so, um, anyway, we go to lunch, and we talk, and he's really nice. He's very, yeah, and I did, I did, so I get back on the airplane, fly out there. When I get out to Los Angeles and I got to connect planes, go to San Diego, I get to San Diego, and who picks me up but is John Felsky, who is a catcher for one of the teams with his manager. Felsky became the Cubs manager eventually, years later. And the, the guy with him is a famous player, not, not, not like a famous but a very famous player that I can't think of his name right now, who was also the, a manager in the minor leagues for them. And manage the Cubs also, and they're picking me up at the airport in San Diego. Not, I didn't know how I was going to get to Escondido. Well, they the Cubs told them to go down and pick me up, so I have to drive up to. Another, I think this is another Cincinnati camp. You know, I'm going to get there, and there's not going to be any other umpires. Well, turns out there was three or four. Uh, Paul Rungi was one of them. He he lived in uh, San Diego at the time, and he's one of the A League umpires, and I was a Double A umpire at the time, and and uh, Jerry Va- Jerry Dale. Uh, who was became a, a National League umpire later, was released by the National League, but he was in the Pacific Coast League. So I did have some umpires there, and then I left there to go to Albuquerque, New Mexico, my first game, working with a guy named Bob Henry on, who was a 20-year veteran of the uh, Army, and he retired, and so he's an old guy. He didn't care about umpiring really that much. He really cared about you know, doing anything off the field that he wanted to do, and it was another job, and he was, re- you know, he was retired from the Army, and nice guy, but really was was marginally involved in umpiring. You know, umpiring was kind of something, he liked to play golf with the players in the daytime and stuff like that, so I really didn't have a comfort zone with him, although I, tr- I mean, I liked him, he was a nice guy and all, but, you know, I was there, to, I was gung-ho to be an umpire. I wanted to be, you know, talk umpire and do umpire and umpire, umpire, umpire. And he wanted to do everything besides that, and I didn't. I just didn't have a relationship in that regard. So we work about two months together, and it's just 
you know, every average. I mean, I mean, a couple of games I had to work by myself because he was sick or couldn't work, and you know, it just was a very uncomfortable feeling. Well, Bruce Fleming gets promoted. He's in the league also. He gets promoted to the Coast League in the middle of, of June, I guess it was maybe. And Finnerty calls me up and says, we're going to make some changes. We're going to bring in Mike Schumer from the Midwest League to replace Fremming, and we're going to put him with Bob Henry on, and you're going to go over with Randy Walsh because and Barnett, and, and Terry Tate is going to leave. He's in the league also, and work with Larry Barnett. Well, I don't know anything about this. I don't even know Franny Walsh from Adam, but I knew he was a major league umpire. I get over with Franny Walsh, and I'm going to tell you what, he was in his 60s if he was a day old. And he was all about what I wanted to be, umpire, umpire, umpire. And, I mean, I mean, he ran his game like nobody you ever seen run his game. I mean, I had I, tears would run down my eyes on the field, the things that he would do. And I don't mean flamboyantly. I mean just running the game and being tough as, tough as nails. They were afraid of him. I mean, I, I can remember one day a, a guy named um, Hal, it wasn't Rainier, Hal, he had a brother, I can't think of his name either, but he, he yelled from the dugout, uh, hey, you know, hey, Franny, and he, real loud, and he pointed up in the air to the plane. He said, there goes all your buddies. And there was, you know, what he's referring to was that he had been fired from the National League, and there goes all your buddies that are flying in that airplane while you're working down here in the bush leagues, as what he said. And I think that was about three ejections later. That, that was, <laughs> Uh, you know, so it was really unbelievable. I tell you those stories only from the standpoint. It gave me the motivation. I mean, he'd go out on fly balls in a two-man system, and I was calling plays at second base from home plate. You know, I mean, not from home plate, but running across the mound. Uh, you know, hustle, 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 run, 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 go, go, go. Uh, you know, now the, the negative of it was that he was older, and, boy, we'd have some long five, six, seven, eight hundred 800-mile trips, and, my Lord, I'd drive most of the time, which was okay, but whenever he would drive, I mean, his eyes would water, and he'd have his handkerchief wiping his eyes, and I was afraid to go to sleep in the car, so to speak. You know, I didn't know whether we were going to drive off into the desert or whatever, but wonderful, wonderful guy. Uh, he, he had a, I mean, I'd laugh, made me laugh the whole rest of the season. I was so excited. I mean, all he kept saying was, God, you, you know, he, he just built my confidence up to where I could have run to a, a brick wall, and uh, they were always asking about umpires, and uh, you know, because he, of his age and because he had been in the major leagues, and I mean, he would rave my reviews, uh, unbelievable. And sure enough, I spent one year there, and I'm in the International League after my after my third year. In, in it was incredible. I mean, I, I was thrilled to work in the Texas League. I would have loved to work there another year or two, and hopefully, maybe they just bought my contract, of which exactly what they did to Barnett. They kept him. And he got bought by the American League out of the Texas League. And the reason for that was is they wanted him to stay in a two-man system and work more games behind the plate and get more experience. Where I went to the International League, and the luxury of that was you flew in the league, and you also, uh, uh, you know, you also had three men. And, uh, you know, bigger cities, bigger this, bigger that, whatever. And so I was thrilled to be one step away from the major leagues after my third year, and I was very fortunate. But Franny Walsh, uh, Frank Walsh, to get back to your point, was an absolute phenomenal partner in regards to everything that a young umpire would ever want in regards to handling the game. Now, he did it a lot more di- different than it's done today. And, of course, in my career, it was done most of the w- my career was done the way he did it was the fact that you ran the game. You were in charge today. There's replay. There's, 
you know, there's less arguments. There's, there isn't any confrontations of that kind. But in those days, the umpire was really in charge. I want to bring in uh, your father for a second, who also got to what we would now call AAA. And uh, by, by account is one of the, the, the better umpires to not make the big leagues. Um, I know you, you made the AAA. How much did your father have an influence at this time in your career? Oh, absolutely. Uh, he was truly my mentor. Uh, my, uh, I mean, he's just phenomenal. He, he really was, didn't want, did not want me to go to umpire school. I, I think I say that in the book some point in time. He was opposed to that. He wanted me to go to college, of which I did, and I didn't like college. As I said, I was dating a girl whom I'm married to this day, and as I was no doubt probably homesick in that regard, too, going to college, and I didn't like it. Came home and got a job. My dad was very disappointed that I did stay in college and so on, and then, of course, when I decided I wanted to become an umpire, <clears throat> him having not been successful in his quest to become a major league umpire, Obviously, he was probably, no doubt, in his mind, concerned about, I don't want my son to go through the same disappointment, possibly, that, that he had and have to go through something like that. Now, he never said that words to me, but as I analyzed it in my mind, that was his reasoning, I'm sure, when he was so adamantly against me doing that. You know, He said, you know, you couldn't even go up to college without coming home. What do you think it's going to be like when you are gone all year or all, all summer? Well, it was amazing. There's a story I earlier told you about leaving St. Louis to go to the Upright School. I had tears in my eyes already when I was crossing the bridge to go into Illinois. And so he, he, he analyzed that correctly, that I was a very homebody person, and you know I didn't like to be away from home. And, but then once you get into the mentality of doing what you're doing, you kind of get in a different mindset, so to speak. And, and that's what happened to me. But my dad was adamantly opposed to me going, and then after I got my job in the Midwest League, my father was so, so helpful. So, you know, he'd come to games in the Midwest League, and I remember turning around to look at him, you know, kind of like, not, did you see, you know, kind of my, my expression to him, and he'd give me a thumbs up or whatever. I was always concerned about my voice and whether I was loud enough and this type of thing, you know. And, but he would give me a lot of pointers and help and, and a big booster and big help and just, a lot of enthusiasm, and, and, you know, when you had down days or down times or something, you call him, and he'd always seem to build me up and get me back to where I had to get to where I wanted to go. And, of course, when I got to the major leagues, it was uh, one of his biggest and thrills in his life and certainly one of, was one of mine. And my dad was, was my mentor. And, in fact, as I'm sitting here talking to you, there's a picture of him on my desk. and uh, <clears throat> I, I worked several World Series, as you alluded to, and uh, – the one that I am most proud of is the 1982 World Series, of which he attended, and I have a pretty good picture of him right behind home plate that I can see with a magnifying glass. It's, it's, a, it's a big picture, and he was at that game, and of course he died in '83, uh, early '83, and uh, uh, unexpectedly. And so, anyway, having said that, uh, <clears throat> my dad was a gigantic part of my career and my life. By the '82 World Series, your second World Series, and and also one that uh, went through your native St. Louis. Exactly. I was, uh, it was, I was extremely excited about that issue. Uh, uh, it's a funny story along those lines as well. I, I was selected in probably early October, uh, for the, I mean early September, and I knew I was going to work the World Series. I didn't know who was going to be in it, but I knew I was going to work the World Series. 
And the Cardinals ended up winning their division, and then I believe they played the Giants or they played someone, I don't remember who they played that year, uh, to get into the into the um, World Series. But they obviously had to first win their division and then win the playoff to get into the World Series. And uh, I knew, as I said, it was going to well, then St. Louis gets in it, and I said, wow, this is unbelievable. I hadn't worked any games in St. Louis because I was an American League umpire, and even though that I'd always dreamed and, and had all the dreams and aspirations of becoming a National League umpire, I was bought by the American League, and I had no choice in the matter, and I didn't. I was happy to be in the big league, so I was very fortunate to make in, in the major leagues regardless. But here was a situation I was going to come back and work at St. Louis, which was quite special, and it turned out it was a special series. It was a fun series. It was two as I described, I think in the two, so to speak, beer-drinking communities. I'm not a beer drinker as such, but the reason I mention that is that <clears throat> a lot of World Series, as you would see the you know, likes of all the Hollywood uh, starlets and stars and our politicians in New York or Los Angeles or wherever it was at. And in this World Series, it was literally baseball fans attending uh, a World Series. And there was a tremendous amount of excitement in St. Louis. They hadn't been in the World Series since 1968, and here it was 1972, and all—I uh, mean, 1982, uh, 80, and throughout the whole 70s, it was pretty a lot of doldrums through the St. Louis area with the baseball team and several managers and teams are very marginal. And Herzog brought a lot of uh, enthusiasm, and then of course they get to the World Series, and it's really exciting. And Milwaukee, for the same reason, they had never been to the World Series uh, in in the Brewers situation. And there was incredible excitement. So it was fun all the way around, and the Cardinals won the World Series, which made it even more special from the standpoint of living here. Not so much for me. I could have cared less who won. I was rooting for the umpiring team and no other team. Just That's the only team I rooted for was the umpires. But uh, by the fact I mentioned that they won, and we didn't have any controversy whatsoever, and the, the euphoric atmosphere that was in and around St. Louis throughout the entire Winter was incredible, kind of what is being experienced in St. Louis today with the um, Stanley Cup. Uh, you know, they had never won the Stanley Cup here, and my lord, this town is a buzz about hockey, and um, it just continues. I mean, there's everything week, week, week in, and we got. That's how it was in 19, the winter of '82 in St. Louis. Well, nobody's disappointed that Boston didn't win another championship in in any sport. <laughs> so, I thought, you know, we mentioned the St. Louis Milwaukee World Series which St. Louis wins four games to three. But I want to touch on the crew. Uh, I'll give the whole crew here for a second. Lee Wire, Bill Howard, John Kibler, Thatch Davidson, and Jim Evans. I wanted to talk about two guys in particular here. The first one being Lee Wire, a National League umpire who passed way too soon. Um, but by all accounts, is one of the funniest, most generous, kind humans uh, that many people have come across. Can you give me your impressions in the three World Series uh, three separate World Series. You're in four of them, three of them with Lee Wire. I think he described him personally. He was not only funny, he was not. He was a very talented, good umpire as well, but good guy, special friend. I loved every minute I spent with him. We had nothing but great times. I fully, I fully believe that had he lived, <clears throat> we would have worked the last World Series together as well. Uh, he died, unfortunately. I believe it was, uh, uh, I think it was 89 is what I think it was. And uh, and, 90, and he was he was telling me at the time he was going to work one more World Series and retire, and so <clears throat> Lee was just a special special guy, and uh, you know there's a lot of 
I mean, I wouldn't say it negatively, but there was somewhat of a, a competitive nature between the National League umpires looking a little bit down, so to speak, on the American League umpires. And it didn't necessarily have anything to do with they didn't like each other. It had to do with pretty much even before they came into the game as a major league umpire, uh, years and years ago, back in the 60s, the National League had a union, and the American League, did, I guess, did not join the union at the time. And this is way, way, way before any of us were in the big leagues. That kind of carried over, and, you know, back in those days, I think the National League probably thought, well, those guys were chicken or whatever, wouldn't, wouldn't be with us, whatever, however it turned out. And then, of course, as you know, 68 came along, and Salerno and Valentine, and then they all joined under one union. But there was always that animosity, I think, from the National League to the American League that was created back in the Al Barnett days and guys way before the guys that were currently umpiring. But it carried over over the years to even guys, you know, that were now they become National League umpires. You maybe work with them all the whole minor league career. All It's almost like they were in a better league or a better atmosphere or a better whatever. And so that was kind of a um, something that, most American League guys did not like and didn't enjoy. But Lee Wire was not one of those guys. Lee Wire was nothing of that nature. I mean, I mean, he was so special. He was just a good guy to be with, and you didn't know anything like that. And, and the same I would say for Bob Engel, and there's several others that I could probably mention that I would forget to mention, but there was a lot of guys that carried that, that hardcore National League were supreme and so on and so forth. And really, there was no difference between the two umpiring leagues. One wore a different protector for the longest time, but which they finally changed that. And, and uh, most of us were very, very good friends in the minor leagues coming up together. But it would separate you by going to the National and the American League in that regard. And it's almost like being a Republican or a Democrat, so to speak. And the, the dislike that each other, each party sometimes has for each other. And it's ridiculous because basically you're all in the same profession, so to speak. We've got to take a short break on the plate meeting powered by Close Call Sports. But when we come back, we're going to talk about how Davey Phillips went from making less than $500 a month to $10,000 a year at the age of 26. And was he stalking Dick Butler? We will find that out when we return on the plate meeting powered by Close Call Sports. Hi, this is Jack Furlong, founder, president, and CEO of the OSIP Foundation Incorporated, where OSIP stands for Outstanding Sportsmanship is Paramount, a 501c3 organization dedicated to promoting good sportsmanship throughout all capacities of sports and competition. Please be sure to check out our website at osipfoundation.org to learn about us and some of our programs, such as our blog, The Strike Zone, our podcast, How You Play the Game, our awards programs for student-athletes, and Officials Anonymous, our hotline for sports officials who deal with abuse, anxiety, and other similar issues. Once again, that's OSIP Foundation. We welcome you back to the plate meeting powered by Close Call Sports. Caffrey <laughs> here, Gillenberg, uh, producing the program, our guest on this edition, the great Dave Phillips. And I love how most people on the field call it to Dave. Like, uh, you know, it's just, it, it just starts, it just flows. Davey Phillips just flows off the tongue to me. Uh, let, we're going to go back now uh, to the tease we did before the break in which you're in AAA for four years, you're kind of getting to that point where what's going on, you don't know what's going on, and you think you see Dick Butler, where do you think, and you kind of do something a little goofy. Um, can you take me through this story? 
Yeah, I'll just preface it by saying that I went to the International League in 1967, 68, 69, and 70. 67, when I got there, it was it was like the major leagues. And when I say that to you, I mean the fact that everybody knew, or at least all the players knew, that they were talking very seriously about expanding in 1969 to include a couple more teams. So when I got to the International League in that first year, Everybody who was a major league baseball player at one time or another was playing in the minor leagues. We had old players playing. They had Sam Jones and people you've probably heard of, but you know Raleigh Sheldon and I mean there was a host of guys that were uh, that, that were old former major league players, and and so it was tremendous experience for me when I first got to the international league in light of the fact that you know you're you're, you're playing you're, you're umpiring for name people. I mean. I mean, you knew their names. You had baseball cards in some of these guys. And and so it was very impressive to me to go to that lake. Now, to get to your point in the story about Dick Butler, uh, in 1970, I was in Louisville, and my wife was pregnant at the time, and uh, we stayed at a very, very nice hotel because that she was pregnant. I mean, I didn't want to stay at some of the places that we stayed, so we stayed out by the airport, uh, and which was right by the air, by the field as well. By the, by the baseball field, and uh, it was really, really a nice hotel. And later in my basketball career, I stayed there a lot as well when I worked at, for the Louisville Cardinals. Cardinals, but um, and we went in, uh, and we were having a little late snack in. I guess it would have been July before I was going to go to the game. And and we're sitting there. There's nobody in this gigantic restaurant, and who walks almost right by me. And although my wife and I are sitting there, he walks almost right by me, and I look at him, and it looks to me, appears to me, that it's Dick Butler. Now, I didn't know Dick Butler really well, but he was the president of the Texas League. I mean, he was the president of the Cubs, which who I went to spring training with, as I told you earlier, in the Texas League. He was the president of that ball club. And, uh, and Franny knew him really well. Franny Walsh knew him really well, and that's one of Franny's, Franny's biggest, uh, I mean, he's, mentor of Franny and Dick Butler were just as close as could be. And Franny used to go up and wash his car and wax his car and do this kind of thing. Not because he just had overabundance of energy, and he loved Dick Butler. Dick Butler evidently got him back into baseball, so to speak. So the the few times I met him, it was very briefly, but I didn't know. I kind of thought I, when he walked by my table, I was sure that it was him, but I wasn't totally sure. So I got up from my table after he walked by, and he didn't see me. He didn't say anything to me. And I went over to the phone, and I and I thought, well, I'm going to just, just, I said, uh, the lady got on the phone, and the hotel operator, and she said, can I help you? And I said, yeah, can you ring Dick Butler's room? And, and by gosh, she does. And and I hung up the phone right away. I was in the restaurant. Well, he wasn't there, I'm sure, because he just walked through there, and it, which which made made me know for sure he was there. And I guess I should tell you that I actually thought that I was already going to the National League. And the reason I say that is because uh, I had worked a game in Syracuse about three, four weeks before that, maybe two or three. It was right around the All-Star break for the Major League Baseball players, uh, somewhere around that time. And I'm not trying to make this hard for you to understand, but I was in Syracuse, New York, and Barney Deary, who was in charge of the umpires, uh, tells me that Fred Flagg and Warren Giles are coming to Syracuse and they want to watch me work. And Warren Giles was not president of the league at the time, as I recall. Uh, he may have been, but I, don't, I didn't. Maybe he was. But 
the reason they were there was supposedly to see me, but the reason they were really going to do that is they're going to the Hall of Fame the next day. Yeah, I, I guess it was Hall of Fame ceremonies or whatever they had to go. And it was on the way, and they could obviously stop and see Dave Phillips on fire. Uh, I mean, not that that was their main goal, but that's what Marty Gary tells me, that they're going to be there. So I got a doubleheader that day, and I work in Syracuse. And in between games of the doubleheader, Fred Flagg comes out to my, my dressing room, who was the National League secretary and who was the National League supervisor for umpires. And he comes out. He has me come out of the dressing room. And he says, introduces himself. I very impressive. He asked me very blunt questions about, you know, um, are you busy this winter? And I said, no. And he said, well, he said, I'd like to send you to Puerto Rico uh, for winter ball. <clears throat> and we were just that whatever and told me some things like that. I told my wife was pregnant. He didn't make any acknowledgement of that at all. Nothing. It didn't do, oh, whoa, it's good, whatever. I said, that's the only thing I got going. She's supposed to deliver in September. Other than that, sir. And he makes that, that I didn't even say that, and which is, I'm only telling them because that was just the exact opposite with Dick Butler. And so <clears throat> I get uh, I get to uh, get back to the original part of the story. Uh, I get back to the hotel in Syracuse, and Barney Geary calls me, asks me how it went. I told him, he said, well, let me be the first to congratulate you. You're going to be purchased in the winter meetings by the National League. So I am, I mean, I'm shocked, but he he evidently knew this inside information. That's what their plan was. And so I'm I'm a nationally gun part in my mind. Now, I wasn't to tell anybody other than my wife, so I call my wife and my father. And man, I mean, we're just, I mean, I'm just, I jump on the bed. I'm going to the National League, this, that, whatever, you know, and it's going to happen in November. Now, I don't know what's going to happen in November other than they're going to purchase my contract, what was told to me by Deary. So now we jump back to Louisville, and I see Dick Butler walk through the thing, and I, I don't know why he would be there, but I think that's him, and sure enough, I confirmed that it is him. So I go to the ballpark, and I don't say anything to anybody because I don't want to worry about it, worry anybody or anything like that because I wasn't sure really what was going on. So two days go by, and he's at the game. I don't know. I don't ever see him. I look for him. I try to find him, and I, I kind of thought I saw him in the stadium, but I wasn't really sure, you know, working on the, working the game. And I, I go to the pool one day in Louisville. You know, my wife and I go to the pool. It's like maybe, I don't know, 10, 30, 11, 11, 30, 12, something like that. And, and I didn't see him, but he's sitting way at the end of the pool in a swimming suit. And finally, yes, some kid come up to me, and he says, uh, uh, sir, he said, that man down there would like to see you. And so I go down, to, and it's Mr. Butler. I mean, I didn't know who it was because he had a swimming suit on. And he, he's sitting there, and it's, swimming suit and I don't know if he had a shirt on or whatever. So he said, sit down, Dick, sit down. Dick Butler. I said, oh, hi, Mr. Butler. And, you know, just, uh, and, and I acted as though I didn't know he was there, but I, <laughs> I did know he was there, but I didn't know really why he was there because I was told by Derry I was going to the National League. And so we sit down and he said, I'd like to talk to you. And so he proceeds to talk to me for the better part of two, three hours at the pool. And, and he asked me, he says, who's that good-looking girl you got up there with me? And he I said, well, that's my wife. Which, you know, I guess that was a good thing because, you know, I've been sitting there with somebody, somebody else. I said, yeah, she's pregnant and so on. And so anyway, he went, he went, um, she, my wife, I think she waved or something and she went back and she didn't know who I was with and she went back to the hotel and laid down, whatever. But I sit there for two or three hours and he proceeds to talk to me and tell me everything about what he's there for. And what he's there for is to uh, watch me umpire and, 
and da 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 da. And he tells me what their plans are, and and he tells me where I would stand in the situation if they if they uh, were able to purchase my contract and so on and so forth. And da 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 da. And I tell him about what Deary told me. Because, I mean, shit, everything's been so, I mean, it's an unbelievable conversation. I mean, when I tell you this and you listen to other guys talk, nobody got this kind of a, most of them, you know, it was very incognito. And, you know, here Barney's already told me I'm going to the National League in November. And now here's Dick Butler. And he, I mean, for two hours he tells me exactly who, if we, if we hire one guy, it will be uh, uh, Nick Avant. If we hire two, it would be you. If we hire three, and he, so I'm going to be the second guy hired if they hire two guys in the American League. Now I'm not. I'm going to the National League in my mind. If you follow that so far, so I tell him what Gary told me. He says, "Yeah," and he says, "Well, we're aware of that, but he says to our knowledge, your contract has not been purchased yet." Comes back with that, and I say, "Oh, okay." And, I, and again, I don't know how this is all done. I mean, I, I'm very naive to this. And so we sit there for a little while. And as I said, he told me who was going to be first with Nick Navian, so I'm going to be third or second. And I think, I don't know if he got the third and fourth or not, but I'm second guy to go to the big leagues if they need two guys next year. And, but he still hasn't purchased my contract yet. So, man, I go to the stadium that night, and I, tell these, I don't tell these guys what he told me because I can't. You know, I'm really, you know, I don't want to get myself in trouble. But I really had good partners, and I just had to be incognito, so to speak, about that. And they weren't staying at that hotel because it was too expensive. That's the other thing. I was, I was out there by myself only because my wife was six, seven, eight months pregnant. And uh, so anyway, the next morning we go back to the hotel. The phone rings about seven thirty, eight o'clock in the morning. And I guess I was up or wasn't up. And it's Butler again. And he says, David, I can still hear him. He says, David, uh, Dick Butler. And I said, yes, sir. And he says, uh, would you, you and your wife like to meet me for breakfast? And I said, well, yes, sir. Yeah, well, but, and so, uh, anyway, we, I said, yes, sir. Well, you, well, meet me down there in a half hour. I said, okay. Well, my wife doesn't feel good. And, you know, as I said, she's seven, eight months pregnant. And so, she says, you go down there. And, and I, if I feel better, I'll come down. And so, But I, I really don't feel good. So, I go down there. And I'm sitting there. And he wanted to know where my wife was. And I told him, oh, feel good and so on. And he sits there. And, He's reading the paper, and he says to me, uh, he says, uh, just that whatever, just general conversation at the beginning. He says, well, Davey, uh, I want to just tell you that uh, I talked to Joe this morning, of which he met Joe Cronin, but I, I wasn't sure exactly who Joe was. And I, I, after I analyzed the conversation, I knew who Joe was. But he says, I talked to Joe this morning, and he says, uh, everything was okay there. He says, and I talked to uh, Mr. Sisler, uh, George, he said, George Sisler, who's our president of the league. And he says, yeah, and everything was okay there. And he said, so, uh, and then he just stopped. He didn't say anything else. And he started reading the paper again. And, and he kind of like almost ignored him. He didn't say anything else. And so, I, I mean, I was like befuddled. I didn't know what he was going to say or what was, everything was okay with Joe. Everything was okay with George, George Sisler. But I wasn't sure where he was going. So, Finally, he looked at me again, and I said, I, I'm, I'm a little confused, sir. It's, oh, he said, and this is exactly what he said. Oh, he said, I just want to be the first to congratulate you. You are now an American League umpire. Wow. Your contract, was, your contract was purchased this morning. And I'm, I, I'm saying, I mean, I can't, I can't tell you the 
Zubert Syed. I, I mean, I, I, I couldn't tell. I can't tell you. Now, it was shocking to me because I thought I would always be a national gunfire. I always wore the inside protector. I never wore the outside protector. But it doesn't matter. I'm going to. I'm, I mean, you know, all of a sudden, this is, I'm going to the major leagues. And he told me where I was going to be. Second umpire to go to the big league. So I can't. I want to get up. I don't even want breakfast. I I just want to get up and go tell my wife. But I, I, I I'm not going to be rude to this man. So I sat there and, and I couldn't wait to get up and go. And I don't. I don't. And we have breakfast and then we get up and then we shake hands. It takes about an hour. And and I walk as though I'm really calm and cool and cautious and don't let them see you sweat. So like the commercial goes. But. I couldn't wait to get out of sight, and then I ran as fast as I could get to the room to tell my wife. I was—I get—I still get a laugh or almost a tear in my eye telling the story. But I get there, my wife is feeling better now, and and we're like unbelievable. And of course, I called my father and told him, and and that's how I become an American League umpire. Now, the story I told you about Nick Evans turned out to be totally untrue, and uh, <clears throat> not not by the fact Nick didn't mean it, but by the fact that. They called Nick up at the end of the season. He went up and worked in the major leagues. I did not. And the reason I did not, Dick Butler wanted me to, I was told later. And he wanted to bring me up to the big leagues for 20 days, which I would have loved to have done. I would have, oh, my God, I couldn't have. I, I was almost disappointed that I wasn't going to. And I got ahead a little bit ahead of this story. And I remember I told you about Fred Flagg didn't make any knowledge of my wife being pregnant. Mm-hmm. And so Dick did say to me that morning, he says, Dave, do you have any plans for the winter? And I said, do you have anything anything that you can't? I said, the only thing was my wife is pregnant, and she's going to be delivered sometime in in uh, September, and that, that's the only thing that right now, other than i got to get a job, so on and so forth, but that's the main thing we have on our plate right now. He's always okay. Well, he said, I would like for you to go to winter ball in Phoenix to the instructional league, and he said, I want you to go out there to work on the outside protector. As you know, we're an outside protector league, and you've never worn the outside protector. And <clears throat> I said, that's correct. And he said, we'll send somebody out there to work with you and so on and so forth. He said, so when do you think you can go out there? And I said, well, whenever you want me to. He said, no, no. He said, I wouldn't want you to go out there before your wife has the baby. And the reason I mentioned that to you before, like, it didn't even matter I, we could have been having two elephants, and he wouldn't have cared. You know, I mean, it was just that's the way it was. And here was Dick Butler showing them uh, the compassion and concern. And so my wife has a whip baby on September the 23rd after I worked the Little World Series. And I get home, and I'm home only one day and from the Little World Series, and she has the baby, and I call Dick and tell him. And, and he said, very nice, congratulatory. And he said, well, why don't you stay a week and go out in uh, October the fourth or fifth and so i did and that's what i did i went out october the fourth or fifth and and i left uh, sometime in november bill kinnaman came out helped me with the outside protector so to speak and uh, i flew from uh, there to columbus ohio and went to larry barnett's wedding as a, a member of his wedding party I, so I, uh, I was very lucky i'd love for you to explain the intricacies of using the outside protector. How difficult was it for you to switch? And how many years did you use the outside? But I know the American League switches back or switches to the inside protector relatively quickly after that, right? Well, uh, not quite. I, I went up in 1971. I worked 71, 72, and 73 
they gave us the option in 74 when Lee McPhail came in, and he said that, that was kind of a somewhat of a controversy, you know, National League, American League, balloon inside. I hated it. I disliked it immensely. I never liked one minute that I worked it. Uh, <clears throat> I, they had two protectors uh, that they used to have in the dressing room. One was kind of a small version of the outside protector, and the other one was the large round bag at the end. Well, I always wore the small one, um, and it was kind of straight off at the bottom, and it only came up to around, you know, a little bit above your belt line, so to speak. And I used to, I worked the outside protector like an inside umpire. I, I, I never never really changed that much because I, I was so used to seeing the pitches that way. I was used to umpiring that way. That's all I'd ever done. And But now I obviously was thrilled to be in the American League and getting American League uh, check and being an American League umpire, so I had to abide by what they were doing. And so I, I incorporated my own style, so to speak, to still be able to wear the outside protector. And the minute, the minute that Lee McPhail said that you can wear the inside protector, I was the very first one to do that. And there was only two of us that year. I think it was myself and Don Denkinger uh, who started off that way. The rest, uh, Richie Garcia was working with me at the time. I Not with me, but he was on the crew that I was on. And he was wor- he, uh, uh, he's smaller than I am, and he was wearing the great big, the large one. He didn't even like the little one. He was wearing the large one because he was going to be in America up by the way it was supposed to be and so on and so forth. And, he, and, and I'm not being, Richie was a very good umpire, very good umpire. And became a very good. Uh, at, the, at the time, he was a relatively new umpire, and it was just too hard for him to work. That I mean, it was, it was hard for anybody to work. And so I, I actually talked him into wearing. He he worked the inside protector about halfway through the season in '74, and he didn't even have one. He used mine. <laughs> but uh, uh, and and as I said, it made a big difference in his career as well because. He's a little guy, and it just it just fits you. So it's much to me. It's much easier to work the inside protector. It's very cumbersome to work the outside protector, and I think there was a lot of criticism for the American League umpires, mainly created by the media, in regards to uh, high pitches, low pitches, this, that, whatever. And they made themselves the media look very intelligent every time they would do a game, and they would say, "Well, he's this or he's that," or "Well, gee, this is an American League game." And, they don't call them low pitch, which wasn't true. I, I worked just like I always did, and, and a lot of other guys were very proficient at doing it once they got good at it, especially taller guys were, I think, a little better the way they wanted you to work right over the top of the head of the catcher, which would block you out somewhat for the low pitch, so to speak. But anyway, that's, the announcers made themselves sound very intelligent and not knowing anything about umpiring at all they would make those comments because they were comments that had been made. Once they allowed the National League and the American League umpires to wear the inside protector, I and Don Danker were the only two that did. And then uh, a host of guys started doing it. Uh, you know, a little this, a little that. Jim Evans, he came over and he started doing it. I think he was another one that was working with me with the outside protector, and I talked him into And he ended up wearing my equipment, too, for a little while, and then he became an inside guy and so on and so forth. But uh, it was it was um, it was just so much, I think, better, easier, and it took off all that mystique about American and National League umpires as well. Were there any of the old school American League guys that kind of thumbed their nose at these young kids wearing the inside protector when Lee McPhail came in, or you know, was it uh, was that not the case? 
Oh, I, I wasn't working with Nestor at the time. Uh, and, and as I said, Nestor and I had a good relationship. He, he became supervisor. In fact, he was at the game uh, when I had the, the disco demolition night. He was there, and, you know, he used to always he, – he treated me with nothing but tremendous respect uh, after I left him. And after I became a crew chief, it was always, uh, Dave, would this okay I could say this, or Dave, could I okay say this and that, whatever. But, you know, when you work with him, it was not, but I'm sure some of the National League guys, American League guys – had that same, um, you know, the same, um, what would I call it, uh, uh, competition, so to speak, from the national to the American. I'm not to say they thought it was better or worse. It was just, we're an American league umpire. Hell, when I went to the big leagues, I ordered a Budweiser. There wasn't Bud Light and all that. I, went, I remember I was an aunt, I was in a, and I worked with Knapp, and, uh, and, 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 and he says to me, what would you order? I said, Budweiser, why? I live in St. Louis. No, no, no. He says, this is a Schlitz league. And at the time, there was a beer named Schlitz. And I I mean, I knew what Schlitz was. I heard about it. I said, oh, okay. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, American League umpires drink Schlitz. That's a National League beer, Budweiser. Well, Budweiser was owned Budweiser, Bush Stadium, and, and it was in St. Louis. So that's how, how stupid it was. Little things like that, that, you know, you, you know, we had to... I forget. We we couldn't straddle the line. I think we straddled the line, and the National League was not a straddle the line. But I forget which one it was now. But yeah, American League Gumpars did this. National League Gumpars did that. So it was really a lot of little idiosyncrasies that created this this stupidity, and even so much as what beer you drank. And I I would have to believe that the old school guys that wore the outside protector the whole time probably looked upon it like. This is a joke. How how can we go their way? You know that type of thing. But as soon as I had the opportunity, I, I jumped on it. Now Bill Haller was never one of those guys. He always wore the outside protector, but he was always you know so supportive of what any young guy did, and he would give you build the confidence up in you. And he's just a phenomenal, phenomenal partner and phenomenal. I had him as a interim crew chief my first year, or his his first year. He became a crew chief in 1973. And he was really interim, and he was interim to Larry Knapp, who was out on an injury. And we had a hell of a crew. I, I never forget. We opened the season. It was it was Haller, Springstead, Luciano, and myself. And at that time, Luciano, who also went to umpire school with me, uh, Luciano was rated as one of the top umpires in the league. And now, in, in reality, he really wasn't, but he is so flamboyant and so different than anybody that had ever seen and the things he would ever do that everybody would just assume that he was really, 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 really good. And that, that, that lasted for about two or three years, and then they started to criticize him. But Ronnie was a phenomenal partner to work with, phenomenal. I could tell you stories that would last for hours. Uh, it would make me laugh. He's like Franny, only on a different side. Franny was running the games with Ron Arter, and Ronnie was uh, doing the things that he did. It was almost like a Max Patkin in an umpire's uniform. And people would literally go to the game to see him work. And I would laugh so laugh so hard before the game, the tears had rolled down my eyes in the, in the dressing room with the things he would do and say. And and, and just him and Haller were just so special. It made it fun. Made it fun. When we had Richie Garcia on, uh, he, he mentioned that no matter how much, how badly you missed the call, Luciano would be like, you nailed it, great call, kid, you know. All that stuff. Did, did you find the same? Uh, uh, I'll tell you a real quick story about that. I, I can't remember the coach 
are the manager at this point, but I had to play at second base in, in, in Chicago, the White Sox. And Ronnie was working first. I'd call the play, and the player I must have argued, I'd call him out. I'm sure I'd call him probably out. And, um, and uh, the player argued, and the manager came out, and maybe the coach, I don't know how that was, but it seemed like I was kind of surrounded, so to speak, with at least the player and the manager. And we were just starting to argue, just starting to, you know, what the, you know, of course, I was already kind of having a situation with the player. And Ronnie came running over from first base. I didn't see him come running over, but, you know, he had a very awkward run. I mean, he was not, you know, like very fluid. I mean, he just, he was a big guy, and he, but he'd run real quick. And people, you know, he loved, people loved to see this. And he ran, and he, and, and the our manager got out there, and he was just starting to argue as, as the player was there. And Ronnie, Ronnie circled me just kept running around circling me and the manager and the player, yelling, great call, baby, great call, greatest call I've ever seen. And he kept doing it. And, and I'm, I mean, I, and all of a sudden the manager just uh, put his hands up and walked away. While the argument was going on, I, maybe I didn't explain it correctly, while the argument was starting, Ronnie came over from first base to the first base umpire and circled me and the manager was, and ran around me just like a wagon train. Like Indians running around a wagon train, and he's screaming and clapping how great of a call I had just made. Did managers and, know what to make of him? Pardon me? Managers know what to make of him, Luciano? No, they didn't know. They, 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 they didn't know what to make of him. They just, they just turned around and walked out. And then, then he puts his arm around me and tells me what a great call I made. Well, you know, now he runs back over to first base, and the fans give him a big clap and so on and so forth. Hell, I mean, I can tell you stories that you would not believe that he did. I'm working in Chicago. There's 55,000 people there. Uh, I don't know what it was. Some special night they'd given away a lot of things. There was, as I recall, 55,555. That's what comes to mind. I remember seeing it on the board, something of that nature. Unbelievable crowd. He's working first base. He's mic'd. He has a microphone on. Why he has a microphone on is because the press loved him so much, and the writers, they were always looking for a little unique story. Ronnie would give it to him. He'd say whatever, you know. He'd say, I mean, he just... He, he, people couldn't believe he'd say stuff that he would say. And so, anyway, he has a ball that goes down the right field line, fair or foul, I don't know, really high and close, and he calls it, and, you know, nobody says anything. And in between innings, he comes over to me. Now, I know he's got the microphone on. And he said, man, he says, that was a close call out there. And I said, yeah, it really did look close. He said, but he's, I, it could have been the other way. I don't know what it was. But, Alex, I wasn't going to call it against this guy. There's too many people here for me to say anything different than fair. Or foul, however he said it, and I and I I put my hand on my chest to say like he's got a microphone on, and he says some more stuff. That, and I'm sure the people in the truck are thinking, what did he just say? You know, they're listening to this stuff. But he he would say stuff just to say stuff, and create controversy like you couldn't believe that he would say. But I I, I mean he he told a writer one time, and I'm really. There was this was when he was running Weaver and all that, and he had you know he ran two times in a row or something, two games in a row in Anaheim, and you know and it was really he and Weaver had a bit, way way back from the Eastern League is when it started, and so it never did seem to finish. And Weaver and him went at each other all the time, and the writer said, "Well, do you like Weaver?" He says, "No, I can't stand him." He said, "Well, what does that mean?" He says, "Well, he said, I don't care who wins the game." I really don't. I'm an umpire, but I don't care who wins the game. The law is the Orioles don't. <laughs> and the guy said, pardon me? I mean, the writer, 
looked at him like, what did you just say? And he said it again. Well, he would say shit like that, that he knew, you know, uh, I mean, I, you don't, I don't know how much you know about Ronnie, but he was an All-American football player at Syracuse University when Jim Brown was there, the famous running back. I don't know if I'm dating myself here. And uh, Ronnie, uh, he said to me, well, I went to high school with him, so we were talking about that one day. And he, you know, I, I don't, maybe he's lying to me. I don't know. But he said, you know, I was good. He said, I was a good, good player. But he says I wasn't probably any better than some of those other guys. But they knew that something had to be getting, because Jim Brown was so great that they had to find somebody who was maybe making these holes for him to run through. And so they're looking. So I decided I, I would be a bird watcher. And I said, what do you mean a bird watcher? He said, well, I got a thing about binoculars, and I got a, a, went down to the pet shop and bought a, a bird, and he said, I put him in a cage, and he said, I walked around campus with a bird cage and carried it around it. And I said, you got, I said, you got to be kidding me. He said, no. He said, I, I said, he said, well, and the press followed me around all the time. So he created his own image, so to speak, because he was so odd carrying the bird around, and then he was this big, ugly lineman that must be the guy. And, you know, I guess Jim Brown probably said something about him to be that he was good, and they became an All-American and so on. But that's the story Ronnie told me, that he became a, a bird watcher. I said, well, were you a bird? No, he said, I didn't like birds at all. You know, but this is, he, just, he just was funny. He would say to you, he would say to you, well, what do you want to eat tonight? I said, I don't know. Well, just think of anything. I said, what do you mean, think of anything? He said, well, just anything you name. And so I said, Hungarian goulash. Yeah, I just said it. I didn't know what that was. He stopped the car, went to the phone booth, and looked, got the, got the yellow pages to find a place where we get Hungarian goulash, and then we'd drive there to get it. And, and I mean, he was just a fun guy to work with. I mean, he said things, did things. I, I mean, it was just, it was just like a, a whirlwind when you work with him, and, and, I, and I really enjoy all of it. Now, at the Empire School, he wasn't quite like that, but he was a good guy. Were you surprised? His, he fancied himself a broadcaster later in his career. Were you surprised that that didn't really take off with his personality? You know, Joe Garagio and him were very good friends. That's uh, uh, Joe Garagio, who's the one started calling me Davey, that stuck, too. That you asked me there earlier, mentioned about it, me being called Davey. I, I was never called Davey. I was called a lot of other things in my life, but never was called Davey as a kid. And all of a sudden, I guess because I looked young or whatever, he called Davey Phillips, and everybody from then on called me Davey Phillips. But uh, Ronnie was, Ronnie really, really didn't know much about baseball. Honestly speaking, I say that. And so when he was in the booth, when I say he didn't know much about baseball, he was a football player. And um, I don't think Ronnie ever played ball. I don't think he knew much about baseball. And when his career was over, he needed to be, so he decided I'm part of him. You know, of course, he's a big guy and boisterous. I mean, he was he he got his job done well. I don't. I'm not trying to any way criticize. I love to work with him. But when he got when he finally got to get the job with the NBC, it was because he was so funny, and because he did such crazy things. And Joe Garzola was also pretty humorous in his in his uh, broadcasting ability. And of course, so he knew when to do what to do and how to do it. Ronnie, on the other side, was he was recommended by Grajo to become a color guy because he'd be funny and create chaos in the you know in the thing, and he'd become an announcer. 
And Ronnie told the story that when he called the American League to tell him that he was going to resign. Now, keep in mind, he did things and the American League was just pulling their hair out because they'd never seen anything like this. He said he wouldn't ever work another game as long as Earl Weaver was don't, don't, and he didn't. They said to him, they said, well, you'll work Baltimore. He said, well, send me there. I won't work. And he didn't work. He didn't go to the game. He just, he just, he challenged him on everything. So when he calls the league to resign, and he's going to tell him he's going to be NBC announcer, he's <laughs> just typical one. He says, well, he says, I, I call and get Baltimore on the phone. He says, McPhail's on the phone. I can hear him back in the background. And he says, I tell him I'm going to resign. And it's a unique thing. He says, I can hear champagne corks. Popping in the background, <laughs> you know, that was his way of saying they couldn't. Win. But it, that's exactly—he was just a funny guy to work with. And uh, you know, I, I can tell you a story. I mean, tell you a football story real quickly about him. He—he he told me that he played in the Hall of Fame game. And back in those days, the college kids, the Royal Americans, played against the team who had just won the national championship. This had to be in the <laughs> late fifties, I'm guessing. And he's up against—he, I think he told me. Uh, Big Daddy Liskum, I think, is he who he was opposing on the line. As a, he's a college All-American. And the other guy was, in, I think he played for Pittsburgh or something like that. And the big guy, big name, he told me the name, I can't remember exactly. And he said, the game starts, and he said, man, he says, they hiked the ball, and he said, I just bury, bury this Big Daddy Liskum. I think it's who it was. And uh, Big Daddy gets up, and he says, hey, kid, Jesus Christ, he said, this is a Exhibition game, slow it down, slow it down. And Ronnie acts like he didn't hear it. You know, he's going to show just how tough he is. So he did it another time. And it, Big Daddy says the same thing to him. God damn, kid, he says, you know, knock it off. He says, we're here to have a little fun. I mean, you know, of course, he's a professional. And Ronnie's a gun-ho kid who wants to show the world how tough he is. But Ronnie did it one more time. And... And Ronnie tells a story, Big Daddy said, Kid, I goddamn did told I done told you twice. I'm gonna tell you again. And Ronnie said they hiked the ball the next time. He says, Man, I'm gonna knock his ass off again. And he said, the next thing I remember, he says is that I was in a car someplace and I could hear the sirens taking me off the field. <laughs> he said he says, he hit me. I never played another game the rest of the year. He said, he said, I done told you. He said, I remember him telling me, I done told you twice, kid. And he said, the only thing I remember is the ambulance taking me off the field. So he was always making you laugh. If, if there was a crazy incident on the field, the odds are Dave Phillips was there. Before we get to a lot of those, Dave, I want to talk to you about, uh, the, you know, one of the things we love here is the history of the game. There used to be no suspended games in baseball when the visiting team tied or take the lead in the top of the inning. And you were on the field the last time it happened. In 1978, Yankees-Orioles in a crazy four-game wraparound series Friday to Monday. It was a 3 nothing top of the sixth inning lead for the Orioles. Uh, the Yankees score five runs in the top of the seventh, and then the Reigns came. And you couldn't finish the inning. And then the rule was, it reverts back to the sixth inning. Baltimore wins the game. Yankees played the Red Sox in the 78 uh, famous playoff game, the Bucky Dent home run. Um, who knows? If there was the suspended game rule, that may never have happened. 
take me through this crazy series and particularly this game. Well, Phil, you said it just perfectly. It was it was an absolute nightmare of nightmares in series as, as they would be. Baltimore had a very good ball club. <clears throat> It was 1978. Uh, we get in on a Friday night and Friday, Saturday, Sunday, carry over Monday. And it's a miserable weekend. It's a miserable, miserable weekend. I don't remember the exact date. But Baltimore in those days had a beautiful field, at Memorial Field. But unfortunately, the Colts played <clears throat> there as well. So it must have been after they'd played an exhibition game or two. And even though the field was always just massively done by the groundskeeper there with perfect grass every way, shape, and farm. Once the Colts played there, it became a worn-out left field area, especially. There was no grass, and there was mud, and it was, you know, it just it was just because they couldn't, you know, the, the, the football players would tear it up so badly and it couldn't be repaired enough to look good. Well, we have a miserable weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, carryover Monday, and it rains every day. There's lightning, there's we have the lights go out two or three times in a major league stadium. Uh, lights go out during the game. That's how bad it was. Wow. And we have a Saturday night game of which um, it's almost reversed of what happened the day before. And we have rain, and every time it would rain, left field would fill up, wouldn't drain. And when I say field fill up, I'm talking about two or three feet of water in certain areas. Uh, so we, you know, you, you know, you, if the ball went in there, you wouldn't see the ball. It was that's how deep it was, and um, so we ended up having I don't know rain out on, you know, the rain delay on Friday, and then Saturday we had the same situation, and the Orioles win the game on Saturday night, as I recall. I guess I could look it up and make sure I'm telling it exactly. And it's a rain delayed situation, and they win the game and. And the uh, Yankees are beside themselves. Oh, they're pissed off. I mean, they think we could have played. You know how that goes. Well, <clears throat> let me think. I'm telling. Let me think. If I'm telling this exactly right, it's Friday night, Saturday night, and then Sunday. I have that game with, and that's what it was. The Yankees win the game, and Weaver is beside themselves. Weaver is just. We can play the game. We can get this. This, this is bullshit. You know. This water's no big deal, and he wants to play. We cancel the game. <clears throat> he loses the game. He's beside himself. You know, and I'm talking about if you walked out there, the water would be up on your ankles. Correct. And so it's really a nightmare. So I got the plate set Sunday. Beautiful day. Start off in a day game. Get to the 15-8, as you suggested, and I remember the score, how it turned out. But the Yankees go ahead, and it starts to rain. And you can see that it's going to be bad. And it doesn't take much rain there because of the toads about the left field. And we just had the same thing happen on Saturday night, of which the Orioles were so pissed off they couldn't imagine. Well, <clears throat> the Yankees take the lead. To the top of the inning, they take the lead. Goose is coming in to pitch. And Nettles is yelling at him to hurry up. You know, Deuce is doing his normal thing, walking in from the from the bullpen in between innings. And it's it's coming down pretty big drops. <clears throat> no lightning, none of this, but it's coming down. But we gotta get three outs in. And so you know, he's yelling at him to get in, let's go, let's go. 
and Goose isn't figuring out what the hell he's talking. He, they don't know the rules that it reverts back. They have no idea, but evidently Nils did. Well, I'm looking. I mean, when I say I'm looking. I mean, I'm looking for three outs big time because I know we're in trouble if we don't get these three outs, meaning that we're going we're gonna to revert back and we're not going to get this game to count in the way it went. And so I can't get three outs. I mean, it's Belanger, I think, was bad, and maybe we get one out there, and then it's pouring down rain. And I mean, you can't even see. And I think we had one out, and it go you know three and two whatever can't get we can't get a second out have to delay the game and of course to delay the game now the water's deep in left field again just like it was the night before so I wait for a while it stops raining go out there and I yell for Weaver to come out this is as true as I'm telling you this and and, and so I look at him in the duck I'm in left field and Dagginger standing on the side of me I said come here. And I wave at him, come here, and he, he looks at me like, you talking to me? I said, yeah, you, get out of here. And of course, and I'm going back to the Franny Walls days of being in charge. And in those days, you said things that maybe you shouldn't have said or cursed the way you said it, but that's the game, the way it was played. So he runs out there like he's like my big buddy, which he wasn't, but he flopped out there. I said, I'll say, Earl, you see all this water? He's, you know, keep in mind, the night before, he said we could get it up and continue to play. I tell you what I'm gonna do. I want you to go in and get all the towels you told me you could get, and you could sop all this water up last night. And I want you to go in and get it done. We're gonna wait long until you get it done. We're gonna play this game. Because you can't play in this. I said, well, you told me you could play it last night. You could get it fixed. You said you told me that. Davey, he said, wait. I'm saying some words in between there. He said, why are you talking to me like this? I think because I told him why, because he's no, no good CS, I think is what I said. And he says, Davis, you can't get this water. I said, Earl, you told me last night you could get it. You told me you swore. So go get the fucking towels, bring them out here, and get rid of the water. Simple. Well, you know, I knew I couldn't do it. I knew he couldn't do it. I knew he wasn't going to do it. And I was going to call the game. But that was the conversation that took place. And then finally I called the game, and, of course, so we, go, we go in there, and Yankees are thrilled. Now, they're, they're mad at us the night before, but now they're thrilled, and we have to revert. The, or I take it back. The, the Orioles are thrilled with us, and the Yankees are upset. And Figueroa, actually, who was the pitcher for the Yankees, we were very close to their dugout or to their dressing room, and sometime when we were on the field, he came in, had a cup of coffee into our dressing room, and threw it on, which went on Dankinger's, Sport coat. We didn't know at the time what it was, but he did, and they were so upset. Well, the Yankees lost that game because it was reverted back, as you suggested, and you're exactly right. The game the season was tied at the end of the season, and that game surely could have made a big difference. Uh, you know, maybe that had been tied had we had a different rule at that time, but that's exactly how that happened, and those are the exact – there's a lot more words that – I said one, but uh, – a lot more words that took place in that conversation with Weaver to get him get him to the point that you know oh, that you, know, you said you could do it last night. Why not you get it done tonight? So anyway, we had a miserable series and the lights went off again. Next night, Monday night comes around and Howard Cosell's there with the Monday night game of the week and he interviews. Uh, I think it was I think he interviewed Danker. I can't remember how it was, but 
and I think the lights went off during the, that game as well. That's how full the weekend was. Yeah, I was, just, I was looking it up. 23-minute delay due to light failure at 10.39 p.m. in uh, the yeah. game of that series in the bottom of the eighth inning. Just what you're looking for, right? Light delay in the bottom of the eighth. Oh, it was, it was just the whole weekend was like that. I mean, I think it happened on Friday night as well, but I think, I'm sure it happened on Saturday night, I think. And now, of course, I had a day game on Sunday, but the rain still came back. And as I said, the field was the, – the football situation created. That was a nice field in a lot of respects, but when they got finished playing a couple games on it, what, what, what was the date of that game? That, that series, uh, Dave, was uh, August 11th to August 14th. Yeah, and, and, and evidently they had played an NFL game or two there because the field was just absolutely terrible. Well, that in, was in because the NFL would start the first weekend in September usually. So that, yeah, so, so they had a game or two there, and when they got finished with those games, those that left field was just a quagmire. And that's always a problem when the Orioles were in the World Series. Uh, you know, you'd, you'd look at that field back in those days in the 70s, and it looked terrible. I mean, it was just terrible looking. And yet, in you know May, June, July, it was just absolutely magnificent. And you know, it would look like the hell are they? What kind of field is this? You know, in a national World Series game, but they both played on the same field, and that's what took place. You mentioned Craig Nettles during this discussion. He was part of probably the second most famous cork bat incident that you were a part of on the field <laughs> in 1974. Uh, yeah. There was something about second game of double headers with you and incidents happening on the field. More on that. Yeah in a moment, but there was the second game of the doubleheader. You're working third base, and a broken bat comes flying at you. Take me through what happened here. Yeah, that's exactly right. He had, he had set a record that year, and I, I think it was the most home runs ever hit by a Yankee in the month of April, I believe it was. And I don't know what date that was of this game, but you're exactly right. I was working third base, and uh, I, I think it was, if I'm not mistaken, I, it was it was at it was at Met, uh, Met Stadium, uh, Shea Stadium, because uh, they were building, they were rebuilding the old Yankee Stadium. And so for a year or two, we went over to Shea Stadium. And I'm working third base, nothing's really happening. And he, he hit the ball that's, I think, foul or whatever. I don't remember what happened. Or maybe he got on base, I forget. But the bat, the top of the bat, you know how you're standing there, and all of a sudden the, the bat comes flying out towards me at third base. And, First, you duck because you don't know what you see. And it's, you know, about, I guess about eight or nine inches of the bat is laying about five, six feet from me. So I walk over and pick it up, and I could see the cork in it. I mean, you know, where, where it broke off. And I think what they had done was they had sawed the bat like six, seven, eight inches down in half and then installed the cork back in those days. That's how they did it. I guess they thought that's what they would do and, and used, I guess, Elmer's glue or whatever to put it back together. And you would have never seen the, the seam, but when he hit it off the end of the bat, it broke off. And it, did, it didn't break off in a big piece. It broke off in a sawed piece. In other words, when, when I picked up this part of this bat, it was, it, you could see that it had been sawed, if you follow me. Or Nettles, <laughs> I remember he... He, that happened, and I pick it up that bat, and he just we didn't have to we didn't have to throw him out or call him out or whatever. He just ran off of the field from first base and went in the dugout, and he went down in the dugout, and that was the extent of it. There was no argument because the hell, I think Hulk was managing. If I 
No, it might have been Verdon by that time. But it was it was so obvious uh, that I'm holding a piece of bat about, I don't know, I'd say it's seven, eight inches, nine inches, whatever, perfectly sawed off of with cork in it. And he was ejected, obviously ejected, but it wasn't a big deal. He just left and it was over. It was pretty much, they didn't have to x-ray the bat or anything of that nature. It was pretty obvious. And that was also a game with two rain delays. <laughs> I did not realize that. What yeah. day was that? The, what day was that game? That was uh, May twelfth, nineteen seventy four, Shea Stadium. Uh, yeah. Matter of fact, right after he flew out, there was a thirty three minute rain delay. Yeah, that was yeah. Interesting. May, May the twelfth and seventy four. So I'm working with Demiro and and Odom, and I think Odom in that series was the Tigers there. He ran, uh, who was the Detroit manager at the time? I, I don't remember, but while he was running this guy and had an argument with him, I believe it was Hawk, was standing there waiting to talk to him also. So he had two ejections in the same inning, in the same pitch, so to speak. I don't remember what the argument was about, but I remember standing, I, was, I think it was a third base or second, and I remember saying, oh, my Lord. You know, he had one argument with the one manager and ejected him. And when he turned around, the other guy's waiting to talk to him about something else, and he ejected him too. So it was uh, it was quite a quite a quite a crew that year. I was working with Deegan also. And speaking of great guys, and then Richie said this, and, you know, Lou Lou Demero was too nice to be in professional baseball. I would agree with Richie. Uh, he uh, I, at one time Lou told me this. See, Lou was an instructor at the umpiring school when I went there. And, you know, when you go there as a kid, as I already explained this, all the apprehensions and things that I had, and Lou was such a nice man. And, you know, he's a major league umpire at the time, so you, you looked at it, looked upon him like, oh, my God, you know, he was a young Italian guy and nice person, he talked nice. And after I got to know Lou, I worked with Lou three years when he was a crew chief, and then when they, when they made me a crew chief, one of the first guy I had on my crew was Lou DeMuro. So I, I'm, I'm the crew chief, and he's not. Oh, I hadn't been with him for two years by this time. I'd worked with Dankinger for two years before I became a crew chief. But anyway, uh, Lou told me one time when I was working with him that he had studied at one time, I think this to be true, uh, or thought maybe at one time that he wanted to be a priest. And knowing Lou, I think Lou would have been a great priest. He, he, he had more of that meaning, that, that, that mannerisms than he ever did to be a, a major league umpire. I mean, uh, just just wasn't tough enough. Didn't have the real toughness. Uh, you know, good guy, wonderful man, just a wonderful person. But he just didn't have the the mental toughness to be what it took. And maybe he should have worked with Franny Walsh, coming through the minor leagues, and he had a better idea of what it took to be successful. So this is the second member of Demuro's Destroyers that we had on. And I, I when I went through the the box scores of that year, I noticed. That uh, that was an accurate uh, nickname for you guys, but Lou Demero not one ejection on Demero. Well, that was typical. I, I'll give you a real quick story about the Yankee Stadium. Billy Martin's managing, and Cleveland Indians are there. Frank Robinson's managing. You know, Tim, I'm working the plate, and I run Buddy Bell, whom I ended up really liking a lot. But I run Buddy Bell, and of course, so this is after several ejections that had already happened with the Cleveland Indians, and now we're in Yankee Stadium, and. The league is really, and, and of course, in those days, we got a schedule 
for we didn't get a month to month. We got like I don't know three three months or whatever, maybe four months or I forget how it went, but. It was already locked in stone, so they didn't want to change your, you know, we were having all kinds. It started with Richie. Richie ran Eckersley and a few other guys out in Oakland. A guy named, started with an M, um, and a pitcher, I forget his name, but, and that's where it started. And, of course, they ran Frank Robinson, and then this, that, whatever happened. So now I'm in Yankee Stadium. Martin's managing, Frank Robinson's managing. Buddy Bell argues about something, I don't remember, probably a pitch, whatever. And it gets a little bit more carried on, I, I, I ejected. Well, Frank comes out. Uh, tell Frank, you, you know, he's done. He, doesn't, he didn't really argue too much with me. It's almost like he ain't going to talk to me. And he proceeds to walk out to second base where Lewis, who's the coaching. And he stands out and charts in the field. This is, I have a picture of this, so, uh, and I don't remember what game it would have been. Well, God, you can look it up. It's Cleveland was playing in the Yankee Stadium in that year. I walk out to center field. As a plate umpire, now Billy's over there, kind of like, "What the hell's going on?" For you know, he's he, you know, he, he's looking at me. Kind of, I, I watch this happen. I just run, buddy Bill. We had a little delay. Then now, of course, a Frank comes out to me, a little bit of delay, but nothing much. But he didn't get ejected, or I would have. I mean, he just he just turns around, and I'm not talking to you. Goes out to Lou, and Lou's standing out in center field, short center field, and he's and he's you know putting his hands up and down, talking like with his arms, like you know, this is what happens. Frank, what do you want me to deal with it? And I'm sure Frank is saying something about, you know, this is ridiculous. You need to do something about it. Well, I don't know what he was saying. I, I as the plate umpire now, Yankee Stadium, I walked over the mound, over second base, walked out the Sharks center field were there, and I'm in, I'm the plate umpire. Lou's still waving his arms. He, you know, and I know. He, he, Frank is going through his whole deal about how he's getting screwed and these three guys and whatever. And I says, Frank. You're ejected in Corsa. And he don't look at me. I said one more time. I said, Frank, you've just been ejected. Now he's talking to my crew chief. And then I, and I throw him out. I put the arm out. Boom, gone. I figured, well, he'll run after me now. You know, I, I walk, get, walk back home. But I didn't turn around. I was waiting for him to come and start coming after me and start arguing with me. I get back almost home. Play, I turn around and somebody just still standing out to talk to Lou. <laughs> And, and the reason I'm telling you the story is not to criticize Lou. I love Lou. But there was a case where, you know, Bill Haller would have, oh, my Lord, you know, unbelievable. You know, he, he would have. But Lou was such a nice guy. He just, and I ran him in center field. And then he goes to the dugout. He didn't come back to me. He goes to the dugout. He says, no, he's going to say, no, no, no. You, you, he knew he was wrong. And then he left. He didn't come back out. But. Um, I, I, I had to go walk out the center field. Now, of course, so Billy was, he loved it. I don't think he cared for Frank Robinson. I didn't do it for Billy's benefit, but, uh, you know, he loved seeing, you know, anybody that was having trouble with the other team if he followed me. But, uh, yeah, Lou was a nice guy, and he was too nice, and Richie described it perfectly. 83 career ejections. Let's get to a, to a few of them. One of them, well, actually, let's get to the cork bat incident first with Albert Bell. I'll try to hit these a little bit rapid fire. Um, Albert Bell wasn't ejected. He confiscates the bat, and then there's the whole craziness after the game in which, yeah. uh, you know, you can't really get into your locker room right away. Can you take me through well, that's exactly what happened. You, you, you described it very well. We're in, we're in Chicago. I've got the plate. Um, first inning, bottom of the, top of the first inning. Third batter, I think it's Albert Bell. I'm standing there. Nothing's happened. Nothing's going on. I didn't even see, I didn't even see uh, 
Gene Lamont, who was the manager of the White Sox, come out. And he's standing right next to me, and we're not, the pitcher's not ready to pitch, but he says, Davey, and I, it kind of almost scared me. I mean, I didn't know what, yo, yo, Gene, what's up? He says, Davey, he says, uh, I want you to check his bat. Albert's standing right there. And, and so I said, <clears throat> that's not a problem. Yes. Albert, let me see your bat. And Albert very wisely handed me the bat, and I looked at it. I walked away, and I got by myself, and Joe Brinkman was working with me at the time, and he was down at first or second or whatever, and he was the next senior guy in the crew, and I guess he was at first. And I said, as I walked down towards first, I yelled, Joe, come here. So Joe came down, and we're both looking at the bat, and I take my indicator, and I scratch on the top, and I, I thoroughly did investigate it. It was a, I believe it was a black and white bat, black on the top, white on the handle. And uh, came back, and so the rule is, is that you confiscate the bat. <clears throat> and so I walked back, and I said, Albert, you're going to have to get another bat, compensate the bat. But Gene, I said, there's nothing on it. I, I don't see anything that I can see, but I'll take the bat, and I'll give it. So I give it to my clubhouse guy. I walked back to the back of the thing, and, and I gave it to him. He opened the gate, took it. I put it in my locker room, so on and so forth. That was it, first inning. <clears throat> Game's over. I literally and truly, there was never another conversation about it. I don't think they had me check anybody else's bat. I don't think they were. Cleveland did any of that. Normally, that's what would happen. Uh, you know, another team would say, well, you did that to our guy. We'll do it to your guy. Well, I don't think that Cleveland did that. Hardware was managing. So the game's over, and <clears throat> walk back to the gate, go to my dressing room. As I walk back through there and almost get to the dressing room, I see three or four people standing out there, one of which is the general manager of the White Sox, who I had as the pitcher in the minor leagues and know him pretty well at the time. Can't think of his name right now, but... He was the general manager of the White Sox at the time, and um, he's standing there along with the Phyllis Marriage, who happened to be in town with the American League, and uh, somebody else, I forget who else, but the host of people, which is very unusual when you go to your dressing room, that host of people are standing in front of your dressing room, and there was nothing happened in the game that there was. And I had actually forgot about the bat thing. I truly did. I, it happened in the first inning, and I, I don't know why they're there. He says, he being the general manager, whom I can't think of his name right now, says to me, Davey says, there's been a break in, in the dressing room, in your dressing room. And he, said, and, and, I, and he says, but I don't hear this. He says, can you identify the bat? When he said breaking in my dressing room, now I'm walking into the dressing room, and I'm thinking, shit, my World Series rings, my money, my valuables, that's what I thought. I wasn't never even given a thought about the bat. And I get over, and everything is laying just like I left it. My wallet's sitting right in the same place, World Series, all my jewelry, everything's sitting right there. I look around. Now, my other umpires are in the room, too, and now General Manager, as I can't, can't remember his name, you don't know it if you pull it up. He used to be a pitcher in the Milwaukee Braves, I think, organization. And um, he said, Davey, again, can you, the, the bat, then, you know, can you identify it? And now I realize, like, you know, oh, okay. And, I, and they point up to the roof, and they show me where the guy had broken in, and you could see all the, it was all these tiles that you lift up, you know, and you, that, you know, they have a, a bracing that goes through it. They were all bent and broke, and a couple of tiles were broke, and you could see where he came into the corner of the dressing room, whoever that first was. And uh, so, I mean, I was kind of amazed. And so, anyway, he rolls out a picture on a, on a gigantic table that we had sitting in there, and it's a picture of me looking at the bat. And there's a bat sitting in my dressing room. There's a bat sitting there, black and white bat. And he says, First, they look, I look at the bat. He said, do you think this is absolutely not the bat? I already knew it wasn't the bat. And it said Paul Sorrento on it. <laughs> and, 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 
And, and, and I knew when I looked at the bat, it said Albert Bell. I saw that too, you know. I mean, this is nine innings or eight innings ago and probably two and a half hours ago. And so I, I said, no, this is not the bat. And this is before I looked at the picture. And that was number one. Paul Cemento's name was on it instead of Albert Bell's. <clears throat> now they roll the picture out, and well, you can see the markings are obviously different as well, where he put the pine tar on and, you know, the scratches, and they had a real big, gigantic picture blown out and rolled out. And I wish I had that picture. And so uh, I said, no, that's not the bat. And so <clears throat> they, that's the, that, they're fine with that. No, so now we're talking about how they broke in and all this other bullshit and all that. And so we leave, and no, no writers come in. Nobody comes in. And, and the general manager, who, as I told you, slips my mind right now, he says to me, he says, Davey, he says, do me a favor. And I said, yeah, whatever. I said, would you please keep this quiet? He said, we, we really, I, don't, I mean, you know, I don't want to tell the press. We don't want to get this a big deal and so on and so forth. I said, nobody's come in here. I said, that's fine. But let me just tell you, I said, if, if, if somebody does come in here, just so you know, and they do ask me a specific question. I'm going to give them a specific answer, and and so that's just, so you know. I I'm not going to seek them out, but so you know, if somebody asks me, I will tell them the truth. And I'm not going to. So nobody came in, which is kind of most shocking now that I thought about it, because obviously most of the time when you've done something of that nature, you know, that's happened in the game, a writer will come in and ask you about it. But for whatever reason, maybe it happened too long ago. Maybe they were told not to come in. Maybe they told my Nobody was going to see the umpires. We're going to talk about it or whatever. I don't know. But there was nobody came in, so I didn't have to answer any questions. <clears throat> I go home. My wife's in town, interestingly enough. She didn't go to the game. And she was in the room and came in and sit down. And I think we had late room service or something that makes her. So I tell her this story. And I'm kind of laughing kind of about it, kind of thinking, imagine, God, Christ, somebody broke in our dressing room and did this and that one. You know, I'm not laughing, laughing, but I mean, I'm, I'm telling it as almost like a comical story. My wife is looking at me kind of seriously, and and she's not a big baseball person that would know everything and every, anything about the game, but she says to me, well, you know, she says, I don't think that's right. She said, that, that that's that's really just like breaking into your house. Somebody broke into your dressing room. That just sounds like a, I mean, you almost could call it a crime. I mean, they, they, no one should do that. And I said, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, it's pretty right. But I mean, a bat, whatever, you know. That's how I was kind of flipping about it a little bit. And she said, no, I really mean that. She said, don't you have somebody that you meet with every year that's an FBI agent that comes to your crew chief meetings and goes over? And I said, yeah, I said, I do. I, yeah, we do. I mean, you ought to call him. And maybe that's better. So I, it's late. It's not, you know, it's, it's already 11, 30, 12 o'clock in Chicago, and that made he lived in Philadelphia. And I'll think of his name, too, in a second. I'm getting older. I forget names. But anyway, he had been with American League as their security agent and was a former FBI agent for years. And I knew him halfway, knew him well enough, and he got more and more responsibilities as, as the game got longer in my career. So I get the next morning. I had the Bellman bring up all the papers from the Chicago Times or the Chicago whatever paper, Tribune, and so on. <clears throat> and he brings them up to my room, and I look through the paper, and there's not a word about this. Just I'm thinking, well, you know, my wife just made pretty much a comment about it, and I said I would call him the next morning. Nothing's in the paper, not a word about Albert Bell's bat being confiscated. So uh, that's kind of odd, really was. So I called this guy in Philly, and his wife says that he's out running. He'll call me right back as soon as he got. Sure enough, he called me back in 15 minutes. I tell him the story just like I told you, 
And I said, I'm sure you heard about this. And he said, Dave, I have no idea what you're talking about. Are you kidding me? And I said, no, I'm not kidding. I'm telling you, he, I called through the goddamn rafters, broke in our dress room, stole the bath. That's what happened. And he couldn't, he, you know, he, now he's talking, he's talking to me in very serious terms. He says, oh, my God. He says, I can't, oh, Dave, what time's your game today? So I tell him I think it's 6 o'clock or whatever. He says, I'll be there. He's in Philly. He says, I'll, be there. I'll meet you at the stadium at 3.30. I mean, he's dead serious. So, so I get off the phone. I say, wow, okay, you know, he's pretty serious about this. You know I mean? So I mean I I, I wouldn't talk to Bobby Brown who was the who was the uh, president of the league I talked called him and he made it out like okay okay uh, okay great deal so, okay don't worry about it don't say it. so I called this guy this this and obviously so I found out later that it kind of pissed off Bobby Brown that I did that but I I'm glad I did it because my wife was exactly right they were going to probably push this under the rug I'm I'm guessing. I wasn't out to hurt Albert Bell. I liked Albert Bell. I really did. I had never had any issues with him at all. He was a nice guy, and a lot of people would call him this, that, whatever, and as they did Richie Allen, I also liked him. But anyway, uh, <clears throat> I get out to the stadium, and sure enough, I get out there, and this place is cord, yellow tape, shit. It's, it's like I'm on a crime scene. I mean, just like you see on TV. They got yellow tape every place, across the door, in there. There's two or three guys in the in my dress room, one's up in the rafters, uh, I guess they're fingerprinting or whatever, and they got a big ladder, and I don't know what they're doing, but <laughs> they're all over the place. I mean, so I get out there, and I meet with this guy, and we talk for a while, and he's, well, he says, he's, you're sure? I said, no, that's not the bat. That's definitely, they, somebody took the bat. And make a long story short, uh, they, this is on a Friday night, Saturday night, this is when he's there, and then Sunday, he calls me on Saturday night, and he says, he says, Dave, he says, can you be at the stadium at 10 o'clock the next morning? I said, yes, I can. He said, well, we're going to meet him with Reinsdorf and, and whoever this general manager is. And, you know, and that's a, at that time, uh, the guy was the general manager of the Cleveland, whom I really liked, is now on ESPN. Um, he's the third base coach for a long time, or not long time, for the Orioles. And now he, he became the general manager of, of, of Cleveland. Nice guy, very good baseball man. And he was going to be there along with whoever and whoever and whoever. And so they get in there, and they got the real bat sitting on the table. I walk in, and I look right away. I knew it was the bat. And there's a long table there, and everybody's sitting there, along with this FBI guy. I'm the only umpire there. Can you, yeah, this is the bat. And, okay, and they're going to take this bat and x-ray it and this, that, whatever. And um, and so the big deal is about his name was John, uh, John, John, John. John Hart, John Hart. John Hart, he says, he says, you know, we really like to leave this here. I mean, we're willing to take whatever penalties come in here, but we don't want to get into the part of arresting somebody who broke into the dressing room. That was the big deal that Cleveland was worried about, of maybe a really a scandal or whatever you want to call it. And speculating that it was um, Mike Sagey who was the traveling secretary at the time, who was Phil Seggy's son, who was one of the executives for the team as well. So nobody knew, though, for sure. Nobody knew who it was, and uh, nobody said. And But that was the big deal, and so consequently, the bat was confiscated. Albert Bell was the bat, whatever, whatever, and Bobby Brown comes in, and he cuts the bat open, and sure, there's, there's cork in it, it, creates a big deal, and he's going to suspend it for how many ever games it was. And it's, Things over, you know. I mean, it's over as far as everything's done except 
And, and nobody says anything about who did this, but as I said, there was a lot of speculation that it was maybe Mike Seggy or whoever it was, or whoever it was, whatever. Well, anyway, later in the season, <clears throat> that year, I'm, I guess it was in the same, no, it must have been the next year. It was the next year. And I'm in, I'm in Anaheim, California. And it's a Sunday afternoon, working the plate, and it's, it's 90 degrees. It's cold. I mean, it's, it's brutally hot. And so I go over and wash my face off, and I'm, I'm in the dugout. And I had heard the rumor who it was. And, but I didn't know. I, no one ever said. Nobody said it was. Nobody, I just heard a rumor. And so as I'm putting this water in my face, I see these spikes sitting, kind of like I described to you back in my first day in Cincinnati spring training. They're standing in front of me. And so I look up, and, and it's, it's uh, Grimsley, uh, who pitched for the Cleveland Indians. And he's the one that I heard rumored that he had been the one who climbed through the dress room. So he's Davey's hot out there. I said, oh, my God, I said, it is brutal. I said, I said, have you been breaking any, any dress rooms lately? Just, I, just him and I. And he, and he says, how'd you know it was me? I said, I didn't. I do now, though. And <laughs> we laughed, you know. I just said, I didn't, but I do now. And we laughed, and I climbed back up the steps, went out, worked the rest of the game, and so on and so forth. But that's how I actually knew who it was. And, then, of course, a sense later been identified that it was Grimsley. And that's going to wrap up part one of our two-part interview with Dave Phillips. We hope you enjoyed it, and there is a whole heck of a lot more coming up to part two. We're going to talk about basketball. We're going to talk about ejections. We're going to take your questions and let Dave Phillips answer them. That's next time on The Plate Meeting. Until then, happy umpiring, everyone.